Hey folks, I'm Josh Boykin, the founder of Intelligame.us, and welcome back to the Intelligame podcast. This is our long-form version of Intelligame audio content. You may have been listening to Intelligame radio over the past few months, and in fact, you may be listening to this episode on the very feed that you subscribe to Intelligame radio with. Thanks to the help of our patrons, people who are financially helping to keep Intelligame alive, this show is back. And I'm excited to be able to spend longer times with you, getting deeper into conversations with people making changes in the game industry and having discussions about what's taking place in games and in our world. Now, those of you who are newer to Intelligame may not know that this is actually the third episode of the Intelligame podcast, a show that has been on hiatus for quite some time. The first two episodes are available for your listening pleasure on Intelligame.us. If you click the podcast tab, you can find prior episodes. But I am looking forward to bringing this show back and having an opportunity for us to get a little more cozy. Now, you've heard me talk about it a bit before, but Intelligame's third birthday was at the end of September, and I've been doing a lot of thinking about the ways that I want this community to be able to grow and thrive during the coming year. Episode 3 is titled Revival for a couple of reasons. One, because this is the revival of the Intelligame podcast, and that just kind of makes sense. But two, it's meant to call upon this idea of bringing energy back, not just creating energy, but restoring it. In a religious context, revival is often used as a a sort of energy gathering for the congregation, where everybody gets together and shares an experience and gets excited. And I think that that is what I am hoping to channel with the revival of the Intelligent Podcast. Another opportunity for us who care about this site, who care about this industry, who care about games, to be able to gather more energy, to get more excited about the industry that we love, the people who are parts of that industry, and the world around us who are connected to the industry, whether they necessarily know it or not. Games are an ever-growing presence in our society, in our group dynamics, in the ways that we interact with each other many mechanics of gameplay that we now factor into everything from the way that we diet to the way that we exercise and the ways that we interact with coworkers. Games are all around us and it only makes sense for us to then pay attention to the ways in which we design games, the things that we love about them, the things that we don't love so much, and trying to consistently think of ways to make systems and the world better. This morning, I was reading Octavia's Brood, science fiction stories from social justice movements. In Walida Imarisha's introduction, as one of the editors, she references Octavia Butler, to whom the book is dedicated. She writes, She wanted to be one of many black female sci-fi writers. She wanted to be one of thousands of folks writing themselves into the present and into the future. We believe in that right Butler claimed for each of us, the right to dream as ourselves, individually and collectively. But we also think it's a responsibility she handed down. Are we brave enough to imagine beyond the boundaries of the real, and then do the hard work of sculpting reality from our dreams? I think that there's something to that. And when we think about people who have sculpted reality from their dreams, how can you not think of people who are creating video games? These virtual worlds that we literally spend hundreds of hours every year, some of us thousands of hours, taking part in interacting with other people. 
trying to shape these digital worlds to our demands. It's important, the perspectives that are there, the people who are creating those worlds, the people who are shaping the ways in which we experience each other in virtual landscapes. And IntelliGame aims to talk about those things, to showcase and highlight people who are doing things well, who are bringing brightness into the world, and also to give us an opportunity to understand where there are places where we can improve, places where we may be dropping the ball a bit. Amidst all of this, IntelliGame's primary goal is to create a space for community, to give people an opportunity to find each other, people to play games with who are inclusive and tolerant, who care about the thoughts and feelings of others, and who want to have great experiences in and around games, but do that in a way that is thoughtful and thought-provoking. I'm looking forward to sharing more of this episode with you and more IntelliGame content as a whole. Welcome back. Let's get started. The IntelliGame podcast typically starts with an interview. I'm pretty excited to share this interview with you today. Rami Ismail is a game developer from the Netherlands who, as you'll hear over the course of the interview, has been a lot of places. Rami not only is the co-founder of Lambeer, which is a pretty popular indie studio that developed games like Nuclear Throne and Luftrausers, but also is an advocate for many small game development communities, and particularly in populations that us, those of us in the Western market may not see as frequently. I had an opportunity to talk with him a few weeks ago at PAX West. Now, word of caution, the sound quality on this recording is pretty bad. Being on the PAX West show floor and also using a cell phone for my recording didn't come out great. That said, Rami's insights and experience come from a perspective that I think many of us haven't heard before. So I hope you enjoy listening to it. One final note from the editor's table. I had almost completely thrown my voice out by this point at PAX West. So if I sound a little not great, I apologize. I hope that you're able to still enjoy the interview in spite of it. Perhaps maybe in addition to it? I don't know. Either way, enjoy the interview. It's the last day of PAX West out here in Seattle, Washington. My voice is going to be a little bit of a wreck. I'm going to try and talk as little as possible. Uh, but I have one of my favorite folks in the indie scene, Rami Ismail here, just doing absolutely fantastic work, not only for the indie dev scene, but also socially, uh, just kind of all over the place, and developing killer games for, yes, co-founder of Lambeer. You're all over the place, so I, thank I, you for being here. I am, uh, thank you for having me. It's Like you said, my voice is also gone, day four of facts. <laughs> yeah. um, I woke up genuinely thinking it was over, because most facts are three, are three days. days. Yeah, and my brain had to like deal with the shock of having to do another day. But it's, as always, like you get to the show floor and you see the energy of the people and you see the excitement. We had a little kid that kept screaming at the screen whenever something got close and would kick his legs. 
it's been it's been a lovely day, but yeah, I am tired. Yeah, and especially after coming off of Gamescom, just five days out in Germany, right? In Germany, Cologne, Germany. Oh, also a huge event, probably larger than PAX, uh, but also very intense. A lot of people, very loud. PAX tends to be kind of quiet compared to Gamescom, so it was kind of nice. Like. Is a very community-focused event, and Gamescom is a very product-focused event. So sure. it's a little bit quieter here. It's a little bit more subdued. Um, a little fewer like business opportunities for a lot of developers, but it's it's nice to be at PAX. Sure. One of the things that I wanted to talk about today is a there's a new section here essentially at PAX, the playground. Uh, and as we had talked about a little bit earlier, uh, it seems like you just find a problem and then you develop a solution for that problem. You've created Press Kit, which made it a lot easier for indie developers to basically put together the information that journalists would need to find out about games. You just seem to have this, this way of finding these situations. What is Playground and what is that solution? So yeah, it, that is very much what I what I like to do. I'm, I'm a builder. I like making things. I'm very bad at maintaining things. I, I used to um, be part of the collective that ran the Megabooth uh, for like three or four years. And one of the ideas we had back then with Megabooth was that together we are stronger. And the idea was that developers that didn't really have a chance at PAX, you know, new developers, would have a shot of being there, like showcasing their game to this crowd. And as, you know, as time went, yeah, I left Megabooth because it was doing super well and they really didn't need me anymore. So I, I moved on and Vlambeer started having its own booth at PAX and it was great. Like it was super lovely, you know, seeing Vlambeer on, on the map instead yeah. of Megabooth. Um, and I was very excited, but I realized that, you know, I was getting less traffic than I was getting in Megabooth. Uh, but it was fine. Vlambeer is a pretty well established brand. Like we have our fans, they drop by, they bring friends. So we still had a very busy PAX. Sure. And about two years ago, I started noticing that traffic was dropping a bit, you know? And we were still like getting new fans. Our Twitter followers were increasing. People were talking about us more, but we were seeing less people there. I started wondering why. And the thing that uh, me and a lot of other indies have come to realize is that for showcases packs, you hear a lot of talk about visibility on Steam, on iOS, on the App Store, but that is also a problem on a show floor. Like, there's only so many places people can visit, right? Uh, and especially people that only have a day pass, like they only get to check out this much stuff. Um, and when they go into the show floor, the first thing they're gonna go if, go to if they like it is Indie Megaboot. Right. Uh, and then as they go throughout the show floor, they're gonna run into the biggest, most visible indies. And in past few years, um, indie publishers like Devolver Digital and Raw Fury and uh, Adult Swim, you know, publishers like that, Annapurna nowadays, they've done an amazing job at creating interesting places to go to, but it leaves a company like Glamry in a very strange spot. Because we are kind of too big to feel comfortable taking that spot sure. in Megabooth, because we feel that is meant for new developers. But on the other side, we also can't compete with the budgets of Devolver Digital or Raw Fury, so we're stuck with a you know a 10 by 20 booth, and that's all we have to work with. We don't right. have a budget to put like a fighting cage on our show floor like right. Devolver Digital did. I, I reached out to a bunch of other indies of like a similar skill as Flambeer, and I just asked them if they would be interested in trying to create a solution to that. And what we came up with is the playground. And the playground is effectively, if you think of the mega booth as this super fascinating bazaar, right? Like it's this, this little marketplace of like interesting, strange things that you might never have heard of before, games that you uh, 
I would have never learned about if, if Indie Megabooth hadn't done such an amazing job of curating interesting games. Then we are like a department store. Like, you know the brands that are here, they're sure. like the big games, you've probably heard about them. If you haven't, you can check them out and learn about them here, and if you have, you know, come check them out, talk to the developers, hang out, you know, meet people working on games, uh, meet other people playing these games, and just have like a good, like little quiet time. It's not as busy as on other show floors, as in other parts of the show floor, but it, it has like a nice atmosphere. So that's sort of what we've been trying to build, and this is the first time we're doing it, um, and it has gone remarkably well. Yeah. I'm very proud of, of how things are looking. So. This is, you know, the first time we're doing it, so we don't know where it's going to go. But uh, we had Overland, uh, we had Finji here, uh, right. and they're the, the, you know, the people that help create Night in the Woods, Overland, and, and now most recently Tunic, which is this gorgeous little exploration game. We have Dan Edelman, uh, who did Chasm and worked, uh, helped on Axiom Verge. And we have Lambier, we're here with Nuclear Throne. And then we also have a, a merch store, so every indie that's here gets to, you know, have a merch store. Sure. And we just tried to make this place where people could just kind of browse, kind of like in a department store, really, like these these individual indies that all have their own style, their own community, but then also, like, get introduced to these other communities and just hang out and, you know, find some new stuff to play, maybe. Sure. I mean, it's nice having this space here on the sixth floor where you're, you know, not in the same reach as Microsoft and Nintendo and that kind of thing, but you also are able to then kind of band together with other indies to make your communal presence larger. Well, I mean, it's one of those things that this, the problem we're trying to solve is twofold, is if there is no space like this for mid-sized indies, it would make no sense to stay in Megamind, right. right? Which would take a valuable spot that would be available to emerging developers or, or other developers that would otherwise not be impacted. And that's a shame because the purpose of Megamind is to surface this interesting new content. Right. And on the other side, for developers that don't want to be a Megaboost or that don't feel they fit Megaboost, there needs to be a location where they can showcase their games. So we're trying to balance these two things and create a place that doesn't is not opposed to Megaboost. We're not like a competitor to Megaboost. The Megaboost has extreme value to an event like PAX in terms of just all of this new stuff and all of these interesting games. But we do need to be able, as, as small indies that do not necessarily work with a publisher like Devolver that can throw um, they can throw a serious amount of, of funding at a booth. We still need to be able to, you know, show our games to people and to, you know, be visible. And also to have, like, an opportunity to talk to our fans, which has been phenomenal the past few days. Like, seeing the people that love, that love the work we do. Yeah. This has been incredible. So, trying to just make sure that people can find us on the pack show floor. And I think so far, so good. People see, like, the people that have is that really seem to like it. And we've seen a lot of movement between the, uh, the three developer booths. So, we've had fans of Night in the Woods that normally would have never played a game like Nuclear Throne sit down and be like, Okay, tell me what this is. Yeah. And uh, it's really fun explaining, you know, Nuclear Throne to people who really like narrative games. And like, <laughs> well, you shoot a lot, and there's a lot of explosions, and we have subtle world building. Like, there's not much of story. And they just sit down and give it a go, and sometimes they like it, and sometimes they don't. But either way, they now have heard of the game. Right. And they have, a, you know, they have 10 minutes, 15 minutes of good time, like, trying it. 
So I did want to talk a little bit about the work that you've been doing outside of PAX. One of the really interesting things about keeping up with even just your Twitter is that there is there's a sense that you're always keeping up on both sort of the the right way to do games, but also the right way to do life. You are a perpetual traveler, and so you've seen a number of situations, not just in, for instance, like American game culture, and you're from the Netherlands, so, uh, but you have this sort of worldview of uh, an act on social justice. How, what compels you to take those actions? I think originally it started as sort of a, a strange necessity. It's it's easy to forget, but the the Dutch don't speak English. Like it's we we do learn English, but we're traditionally speak Dutch. And one of the things we ran into when Vlaamer was just starting was that the press in the Netherlands has a reach of about 15 million people because sure. that's what the Dutch language has. Um, we realized that if we want to have any chance at making video games commercially, we needed to reach the international press. Both of us were university dropouts, which in the Netherlands is not quite as devastating as it is in the U.S. Um, but it didn't. It did mean we didn't have any money for that time. So the only way for us to reach that international press turned out being uh, getting better at public speaking and trying to see if anybody would invite us to talk about our games. So that's what what we did. So I did a lot of talking in the Netherlands about Super Crate Box, which was a project at the time. And then eventually, I got invited to speak in London, and I went to London. And and I realized that this was something that I could do and that I would like to keep doing because it was interesting meeting all these developers in London that were just very different from anybody I'd met in the Netherlands. So I started, like, the first few years, I started chaining talks together. You know, I'd do one in the U.S. and then I'd reach out to another event nearby and be like, hey, I'm in the U.S. It will be really cheap to, like, go there. Do you want me to come speak there? And it turns out the games industry is always curious. Like, they, they always want to learn. So yeah. if there's somebody from elsewhere, they we like to invite people over to speak to our community. To start doing that, and as as years went, you know, it's it changed from being something that I did because we couldn't afford traveling to Vlamer doing so well that we could afford traveling. And at that point, I realized that I'd seen a lot of sort of like the Nordic region of Europe, Western Europe, and like parts of the U.S. And I I realized that I also had a lot of invitation from other places, but they could never afford flying me there. Right. So I decided to dedicate a part of Vlamer's budget to visiting those places and see if we could help out. Like we've. We've been very thankful for the indie community being sort of like grounded in this notion of paying it forward. So everybody helps each other, and then we hope that the people that we help will ultimately go on helping other people. So right. when I had the opportunity to start traveling to other places, I wanted to help other people. So uh, I started traveling around the world and sort of speaking at places that most people would not even think of as having a games industry. And I just found this amazing wealth of, of passion and enthusiasm because Sure, like in the U.S., becoming a game developer requires a, an amount of sacrifice, right? Like you, you are going to commit to a job that might not pay off, that is creative, that is on this weird touch, like touching point between business and commerce and creativity and art. It's kind of a weird place. Your family probably doesn't understand what you're doing. Right. And, you know, it might not ever earn you any money. So there's. There's all that, but if you're doing this in another country, like if you're doing this in like South America and Uruguay, where the world is very different from here, it requires even more passion to just get started, right? The amount of effort it takes in a kid in the Arabic world to get used to IDEs, like the programming environments being left to right instead of right to left, 
is already a huge mental step that most people would never even consider. That, yeah. You know, computers in some line, in some places, work a different way. If you are born with English, if and then and else, mm -hmm. as programming statements make a lot of sense. When I was born, uh, and I, I did my first modding, when I was six, I had no idea what the words meant. Oh, I just wow. knew that if I removed a word, the huh. game stopped working, or sometimes did weird stuff. Or my, in, my, in the case of the game I was playing, um, it was called Gorillas, and you had two like gorillas on skyscrapers that threw explosive bananas at each other. Yeah, uh, it would just throw infinite bananas uh, because I removed the if statement that waited for the input. Um, so I didn't know what they did. I just like experimented until I figured out that it did that, and then only like years later I learned that if meant if. Yeah. Right? For a large part of my life, I thought that the word potion meant heal. Because in an RPG, if I click potion, my character would heal. Yeah. And I only later on found out that heal means like a, like a potion is like a drink, right? Wow. Like I just didn't know that. Uh, Pokemon never told me that. <laughs> um, so it's stuff like that where there's just there's additional challenges. America has, you know, for for how um, compared to Europe limited like social support networks are it's still better than in a lot of other countries around the world and the acceptance of creativity here is relatively high like creativity is accepted in the u.s in engineering in for example india engineering was a long time seen as an outsourcing thing so you're not creative you get a job you do the job you do it well they're good but it meant that when people started to make their own games people were very uh, worried about that like how nobody had ever designed a game because you just designed them based on you know you just executed on somebody else's designs. So every place has its own challenges and its own outlook on life, but that's also what's so exciting about it for me. When you think about, for example, games about war, the U.S. has very persistently put out games about war that are about being the hero, right? You go in and you, like, liberate a country from whatever thing is going wrong there, and you protect America and its interests, and you protect the world's freedom. And, but I'd never seen a game about war being bad. Like, it's just not something that happened. And then when a Polish studio decided to make a game about war, they made a game called This War of Mine. And um, they made that game, and it's about how bad war is, because the Polish people have quite recently been in war situations. Their memories of World War II are not one of, like, heroism and, like, storming the beaches. It's of, like, we got invaded, and life was horrible for, like, half a decade or more. You know, their attitude towards the world is different. And one of the fascinating things to me is that people don't try to make cultural games. There's nobody that tries to make a game about their country. It's just their country has left an imprint on them and their worldview. And based on that, they make different games. And going around the world and learning about that and seeing those perspectives has been incredibly humbling. And it's, it's helped me realize just how little of the world I really know. And all I really want, the reason I do a lot of this, is because I want, I want the opportunity to learn about the world through games because I feel the games have such an exceptional ability to put us in somebody else's shoes. Right. A game like Papers, Please is very good at explaining just why people might become corrupt. Like, they're not necessarily evil. It's just circumstances of life sometimes push people to do things that might be morally gray or wrong just because they're trying to do something right. And, you know, playing with that, playing with the ability of games to show us perspective, to show us other people's lives, to immerse us in a world that isn't our own, there's so much potential for us to learn about the world, about other people, about other lives, that it would be a loss to not 
try to help that. So as I travel around the world, I try to you know see if there's anything I can do to help. I don't I don't like just going somewhere and offering help. It's like if people want my help, reach out to me. But it's been it's been just incredible. Like this medium has so much potential for so many games that we can't even imagine. And not just narrative-wise, also mechanics-wise. People in different countries actually think of different mechanics, different histories with video games, like close or open certain avenues of thinking that you otherwise might not have. So there's just this incredible potential for more games around the world, and I, I can't wait to see that. Last thing, you know, obviously you've got a passion for all of these social cir circumstances and situations, but there's also a kind of hardcore gamer at work here too. Uh, what games compel you? What what games keep you motivated? Well, I mean, what's interesting is people like to think that I, I play a lot of games like the games I make, but I try to not make games that I like playing. A lot of people do that. I just, I, I can't do it. I, if I make a game, I can't play it anymore because I, I know how it works and sure. I just see it as a broken like piece of software. So I try to make games that are distant enough from what I like. Uh, games I like are, you know, I'm, I'm a huge Destiny fan. Recently been playing a lot of Yakuza Kiwami. I really, basically Jap Japan's output this year has been amazing. Nier, Persona 5, Final Fantasy. And then in terms of indies, I kind of just like playing kind of everything. This showcase, I've walked around and like seen dozens of games that I really want to play. Uh, yeah. I'm wearing the, the little badge, but I played a game called Light Fingers. It's a really cool like see that one. digital board game. Trailmakers, which is like a sandbox build, a vehicle simulator, which was awesome. Uh, Sinner, which was like a Dark Souls, but sort of like super compressed version of Dark Souls that I thought was just incredibly well made. Let's see, uh, Plunge, which was like a mobile roguelike-ish game that was just out of nowhere. It was just like this incredible thing. So there's been just a lot that I've been seeing that just makes me very happy. It's just always incredible to be at a show floor like PAX and to be like, there's so much amazing stuff still coming. Like yeah. every time you think, okay, we've made, we've done it, we've done it. We've made really good games this year. Like, let's take a break, everybody. Yeah. And then the next year is like, no, here's, here's more, it's better. <laughs> But yeah, I, I tend to like relatively long sort of story-based games, not necessarily story-only big games, but games that find that like nice line between having a lot of gameplay and having like a good story. That's that's usually what gets me. I'm not I'm not very good at JRPGs. They usually take too much time. And I don't have a lot of time. But like a good FPS with a really good story or a low effort RPG, those kind of games, they they tend to keep me busy. Cool. I also have a really weird fondness for like slightly broken games. Like a bit older example, but like games like Binary Domain or Alpha Protocol or Earth Defense Force where yeah. you're like, wow, you really tried something like very special and just kind of fell short, just like a tiny bit maybe. Or like you really tried and it just turned out like poorly in some cases. Games like that, like I love the or like black and white. Uh, I love the like the idea behind those, and I love seeing how people try new things. Sure, it's like one of those things where I'm like a huge Peter Molyneux fan, not because everything he does works, but because regardless he tries, right? And I, I feel we need that. We need that optimism in the industry where somebody will just try a thing because maybe it might work. And then sometimes it doesn't, but that's part of game development. If we all get scared of things not working, we're all going to make the same thing. That will be a shame. Yeah.
Well, it's been really awesome talking with you. If you have any, I guess, closing statement, things that you want to wrap up with, and then where folks can find you. Well, yeah, if, you, if you're listening to this and, and you kind of like the whole idea of playing games from different places, I would just, I'd recommend to try and search for some. There's, there's amazing games being made everywhere and they might not be the easiest to find, but they are out there. And if, if you just want to play games from a different worldview, it, it's sometimes you see things that you've never seen in games before and it, it can be incredible, incredibly exciting. I will tweet about those every now and then, so if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm T-H-A underscore Rami, R-A-M for Mary I. Uh, you can also find me at Vlambeer, my company Twitter, and if you search for Nuclear Throne or Ridiculous Fishing or Lift Rousers, we shouldn't be hard to find. Yeah, if you if you have any questions or thoughts or want to let me know or you know one of those games that you think I might not have heard about, like please do reach out. I always love hearing about those. Yeah. Thank you uh, so much for your time. It's been awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Rami for that interview. Rami was actually awarded the Game Changer Award at Indiecade 2017 just this past week. So Rami, if you're listening, congratulations. Our next segment is a director's cut. This is where I take an IntelliGame essay and give it a reading, along with some commentary that was not included in the original writing. This particular essay underscores many of the themes of community that I've been discussing really heavily over the past couple of months. But I also think it's interesting the way that it captures some of the mindset that I was feeling not too long after the Trump election. In a lot of ways, I've noticed that my mindset has perhaps not shifted, but adapted. And sometimes I wonder whether some of that adaptation is for the best. Let's go back to this piece and talk a bit. To start off our revival of Director's Cut, and dig in the crates a little bit, we're traveling back to February 17th of 2017, a day in which I wrote an article titled, It's Dangerous to Go Alone, Party Up. Now, interestingly enough, the header image of this particular article is a Overwatch picture. It is a number of the heroes of Overwatch all standing in a fairly heroic manner, and I'm pretty sure that if I had written that today, I would not have chosen Overwatch. Overwatch and I have a complicated, salty relationship at this point. But that's not really the point. Let's go ahead and get started with the article. It's dangerous to go alone. Party up. Playing team-centric games creates communities for players both inside and out of the game. Communities that could come together to make a difference in the real world, too. I've always been a story-centric gamer myself. My favorite game memories usually involve discovering a major plot twist or getting to the end of a 60-plus hour epic. Even with Final Fantasy XV sitting in my PS4, it's hard to commit to the isolation of single-player games. When I manage to get a couple hours in, I tend to boot up something with team-based online gameplay. My games of choice? Overwatch, Vainglory, or, most recently, Heroes of the Storm. Interestingly enough, actually, um... I don't really play any of those right now. Um, and I guess, you know, when you think about it, it's been eight months since February. I do remember those games being a really regular part of my gaming rotation. And I honestly thought I'd be playing HOTS really consistently. I thought I'd still be playing it today. I think that maybe the ways in which I have valued team dynamics in gaming have changed since February. 
And maybe that's why some of those games have faded out of my rotation. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Each game requires coordination with other live players to be successful. Even though I don't win consistently, I value the time spent with others. I don't think it's a coincidence that I've gotten sucked into these games lately. Isolation makes it easier to spend hours on social media, a depression-inducing practice as of late. In contrast, keeping up with friends via games keeps me energized. Being part of a team that communicates well feels phenomenal, especially when we win. With the right group and the right game, it's easy to see these communities create bonds that stretch outside of the virtual world. When I go through and I'm reading some of this, I'm remembering my mind state from February. This is roughly a month or so after Trump's inauguration, and everything still feels radically shocking. And I notice that even with things that are tragic or shocking, they don't feel as shocking now. I feel like there's this desensitization that takes place when you're just constantly berated with terrible news after terrible news. It seems to take an event as shocking and horrific as the shootings in Las Vegas to wake people up. But even so, there's still this question of, well, now what's going to happen? I've seen news posts here and there, but I don't feel like I'm getting any signaling from the administration or from other political places of power they're actually intent on doing anything about it. But that's why it's important to affect change at least on a micro level. Give us the opportunity to hopefully push the effects up the river instead of waiting for them to trickle down. Back to the article. Ranging in scale from local to national, gaming organizations help players meet each other and can affect change. The interpersonal benefits shouldn't be ignored. I've created many friendships at casual, in-person meetups. Those groups can also be organized to make changes beyond the gaming space. Organizations like Extra Life and Operation Supply Drop raise funds through games, while Humble acts as a game retailer that sends money to charity. Their Freedom Bundle raised over $5 million for the ACLU in under a week. I'd love to see even more gaming groups reach out and use their skills to help others. Organizing community service events, teaching others how to play games, or mentoring others to help them develop their own plans. I still think it's interesting that The Legend of Zelda's iconic phrase, It's dangerous to go alone, take this, suggests taking a weapon instead of finding help. Playing MOBAs in particular reminds me how much we're capable of as part of a strong group. In these multiplayer online battle arenas, which are games like League of Legends or Vainglory, Heroes of the Storm. Each character holds a limited set of abilities. No matter how powerful an individual is, they always have a weakness. Healers tend to be fragile and need protection. Tanks act as targets for the team but tend to do less damage. Assassins do massive damage but fall apart when too many enemies focus on them at once. When a team comes together, they cover each other's weaknesses and roll over uncoordinated groups. We have that same potential in reality. Though I think it's interesting that this article revolves around MOBAs so much, I think there are multiple reasons that I have shied away from MOBAs and moved towards the new kid in town, Destiny 2. 
Now, Destiny 2 does have PvP, player versus player content, and it tends to be a number of what we have considered staples of first-person shooters. Deathmatch, control where you capture a zone and try to protect it from enemy capture, um, sort of a capture of the flag ask. Anyway, I think that the my gravitation towards that style of PvP is that it's a lot faster. And even if I'm working with friends where we're not sharing this very coordinated style of communication, it's still possible for us to be moderately successful. Given you still get wiped out by teams that are good at coordination, but it's easier to do some run and gun, do something that engages a little bit less of those coordinating senses when you're playing that PvP. But I also think that a big part of why I'm into Destiny is because it offers PvE, player versus environment, aka co-op play. I would say the lion's share of Destiny's content revolves around its player versus environment, spaces where we're taking the other members of our team and working together to defeat a computer enemy. Having those spaces where everybody can be working together towards a singular goal and it is essentially a win-win scenario it's not here we're playing this MOBA and we won so you lose and you have rough feelings about it and you might be toxic and say some negative or terrible things there's something about being able to just all work together towards a, sing a singular goal and then get new weapons or new armor together and share in those experiences that is reaffirming right now. It's a bit refreshing, and I really enjoyed Fortnite for a little bit in its possible ability to offer some of that team-based content. Unfortunately, I don't feel like it totally delivered, but Destiny 2 is, is doing it for me. So I think that whether it is a MOBA or Destiny 2, um, they both kind of underscore that idea of when a team works together, we're able to do some pretty great things. Well, let's go back to the article. I've touched on specialization a bit in the past, so I won't go too far down that road again. And that's referring to a specific article that I wrote on specialization and the link you can find for benefits of specialization in life and gaming, either in the show notes or on IntelliGame.us. Realizing our strengths and weaknesses helps us better understand what kinds of people we should work with, and sometimes which ones we shouldn't. Though there are plenty of fights we have to tackle alone, some changes reach beyond our individual capacity. Great movements, even when sparked by strong leaders, require the power of people in mass to push them forward. Our individual roles aren't always constant. Sometimes we need to lead, and other times we need to follow. Sometimes we need to defend or heal a weakened friend, while other times we need to be on the attack. Learning when to change focus is tough, but becomes easier the longer you work with a team. A couple things I thought about during that paragraph. One was talking about the power of people in mass to push them forward. And again, this was in February, so this was before a number of tense traumatic incidents in the national political spectrum and seeing the number of protests that have risen up the number of times that people have come together to stand up for what they believe in 
and specifically to battle back against hatred. The first thought that came to my head was the counter-protest that was here in Portland against the quote-unquote Unite the Right event that was taking place. How essentially four counter-protests showed up to dwarf the numbers of these people who were coming out and 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 representing these supposed issues of free speech, which is used as a pretty significant shield for hate speech and racism and chauvinism and I don't know. It's it's just interesting. Uh there there was a piece that I did recently on on Intelligame about patching free speech that is probably worth bringing up another time. What I also thought about was this idea of learning when to change is tough, but becomes easier when you work with a team longer. Again, this is before uh, Nikki Case's evolution of trust. If you listen to Intelligame Radio, you probably hear me talk about the evolution of trust at least once a week. It's a fantastic interactive game that you should look up. It's playable on your phone or in your web browser on your computer for free. And uh, we did actually a playthrough of it on a previous edition of Let's Teleplay. Nikki in the Instructable talks about the idea of increasing trust and how increasing trust is more likely in situations where people have repeated interactions with each other and have the opportunity to learn about other people's styles and figure out, again, who do we work with and who do we not? The more often that we can create these teams that we spend consistent time around, where we push through some of the struggles and understand that sometimes people aren't going to work out, but more often than not, folks are really trying to do their best and trying to make things better. And it's just a matter of figuring out how to, to push those things together when you're on the same team. I think that there's a lot of strength there. And I've been noticing that particularly as Intelligame has grown and as more people have become part of how these gears turn that having those folks that I can count on and rely on has been really crucial. We have great challenges ahead of us in many places. Politics, climate, the economy. It's unlikely any of us are equipped to take them all on ourselves. We can handle some pieces of the puzzle alone, but the big conflicts out there will take coordination, determination, and resilience. When people find their party and push towards a goal together, though, what seemed impossible can suddenly seem within reach. I like the optimistic tone there. <laughs> I hope that I have been finding similar tones of optimism in later pieces. Anyway, uh, that was our director's cut of It's Dangerous to Go Alone. I hope that you got something out of that. And you'll be seeing more written content, more essays on Intelligame.us in the future. Before we move into the game recommendation, I want to take a second to recognize one of our Intelligame patrons. Over on Patreon.com, people are able to help keep Intelligame afloat by giving a recurring monthly donation. There are also some benefits that you get as a result, but I do think that it is worth calling out you patrons and the work that you're doing because actually this entire podcast was a Patreon funding goal, one that you smashed relatively quickly. So each episode, I'm going to call out one of the patrons and just say thank you. I would be remiss 
if I did not start this series by thanking Carrie Moore, who is one of the IntelliGame catalysts. Carrie actually has made a number of recommendations on how to improve IntelliGame over time, and usually those recommendations pan out really well. One of the recommendations Carrie made was to start a Patreon, and she consistently hounded me to start. Now, I eventually ended up making a secondary pact with Emily Madley, and we both launched at the same time, but the planning, the preparation, and frankly, a lot of me just getting over the fear that comes with starting a campaign like this came from Carrie's support. And now as an IntelliGame Catalyst, she's also providing some of the financial backing to help keep this ship afloat. So thanks for the encouragement, Carrie, and thanks for being a patron of IntelliGame. If you're interested in helping to support this community, then swing over to patreon.com slash letsintelligame. For as little as $3 a month, you can get some special exclusive patron rewards. And at even $5 a month, you can participate in the live chat of our IntelliGame Game Club. Every month, we choose a game and then discuss it, book club style. Last month's is currently on the IntelliGame YouTube channel, and it's a really good discussion. So if you are interested in being part of something like that, I encourage you to swing over to patreon.com slash letsintelligame and go ahead and join the crew. Thanks. And now it's time for Game of the Show. Every episode of the IntelliGame podcast comes with a game recommendation, something that I hope that you'll check out. This can be for any number of reasons, and usually is connected to my gameplay habits in the recent weeks. This week's game is actually a recommendation from something that we went through on Let's IntelliPlay a few weeks ago. Orwell, Keeping an Eye on You, is an interesting game to play in a world where the effects of our digital footprint continue to grow into a maze. I actually read an article recently about somebody who had petitioned Tinder for their digital information, because I guess you can do that in not America, and received over 700 pages of information about themselves, about their swiping habits, about the things that they do on other social networks and other ads, all of these different ways that their internet presence was tied together. Orwell is a game that plays with this idea of what happens when we are using these centralized databases for purposes that may not have anything to do with our dating habits. In Orwell, you are working for The Nation, a fictionalized country, an amalgamation of the United States and the UK and other countries that are typically used as locuses of hotbed interaction in dystopian works. In The Nation, there is a surveillance system that has recently premiered but has not really been disclosed to the public. You are working with this surveillance system using the information that is populated from all across the internet in any number of different places, whether you're looking at people's social media profiles or checking out the things that they've posted on various blogs, perhaps finding links and digging into their phone calls, their emails, or even going directly into their computers themselves to find out any information that you can so long as it is deemed relevant or necessary to your investigation. Of course, all of this is done in the name of the Secretary of Security, and an entire portion of the government is now 
devoted to the idea of keeping the nation secure and safe. Orwell puts you in some difficult situations. You are working with a handler. You're the only one who has this information, the access to the broad swath of information that Orwell has its uh, data access to. You have to send bits and pieces of information through essentially a funnel to a handler who then determines what to do with that information and how to proceed in action. There are a number of morals of the story that I think are really relevant in Orwell, and one of them is about the usefulness of data, or the lack of usefulness of data when it's taken out of context. There are a number of ways that I felt like at the end of Orwell, I had learned a pretty significant amount about even just the way that I handle my own viewing habits on the internet, the ways that I process information and the ways that we can take action a little too quickly. When we take information out of context, when we even take information that we know to be true or accurate, and I should put no in that statement in quotes because how can we really be sure in so many cases? There's a certain way that we can butcher those statements, that we can twist intentions and meanings, and when we relay those stories or relay that information to others, it can relay in some tragic consequences. Again, this is kind of a dark story, but it also is a super relevant one, as we see any number of ways that our influences are growing across the digital spectrum. Orwell isn't a perfect game. It doesn't have very many portrayals of people of color at all, and when we look at the ways that our current administration has targeted a number of individuals, usually among some guidelines of race or sexuality, those omissions stand out even more. But season two of Orwell is just around the corner, and hopefully it'll make some improvements. Currently, Orwell is available on PC and Mac, also Linux. You can find it on GOG.com, The Humble Store, or on Steam. Alright folks, that does it for this edition of the Intelligame Podcast. I've been your host, Josh Boykin, and you can find me on Twitter or Facebook at Wallstormer. Thank you so much for joining me, and thanks to Rami Ismail for his interview. Also, thanks to the folks over at Surprise Attack Games who provided us the code for Orwell. And again, thanks to all of our Patreon backers who helped make this possible. It'll be two weeks until the good ship IGPC sets sail again, but in the meantime, there'll be plenty of Intelligame content. You can swing over to twitch.tv slash letsintelligame every Thursday for Let's Intelliplay from 6 to 8 p.m. You can also keep an eye on Intelligame.us, the main website, for more up-and-coming articles. And as we increase our Twitch streaming schedule, you'll get all the heads up about it on social media if you go to Facebook or Twitter.com slash letsintelligame. Anyway, thank you so much again for the great revival in this content. See you in a couple weeks.